You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We will pick up in John chapter 21. And Lord willing, we will work from verse 8 down through verse 14 today. 8 through 14. And I'll ask you if you're able to stand with me. And we will read together John chapter 21, verses 8 through 14 together. Beginning in verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask Him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me again in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, You are good. I praise You for all that You have done in us and are continuing to do in us. Father, I thank You for the fruit that You bring about in every one of us according to Your purpose and Your power. Lord, I pray that You would work in us now. Lord, You who command all things, You command the weather, the animals, the fish and the sea, our hearts, Lord, that You would be pleased to bring about fruit in the heart of Your people. Lord, stir us up. I pray that You would grow us in our understanding of truth. Lord, I pray that You would bring salvation to the lost. Oh Lord, the ways in which You bring fruit to Your people are vast and wide and great. Lord, I pray that You would do that for us today. Father, please guard me from misspeaking. Lord, even as we look at illustrations and applications from Your Word, I pray that, Lord, You not let me go beyond what You would have for us, but only what You would have. And Lord, if what is said is according to Your will and Your Word, I pray that it would have power and authority. Lord, bring real application that touches our hearts and lives. Not just academic learning, but real and living applications. Father, I pray we would see Jesus, that He would be exalted, and that we would worship Him. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is The Fruit of Christian Ministry. The Fruit of Christian Ministry. And before we begin our text in verse 8, I've got a few introductory thoughts that will kind of set the stage for us and help us to remember Perhaps you're thinking, fruit of Christian ministry, all we're seeing in the verses that we read was these disciples bringing some fish and having some fish for breakfast. What does that have to do with Christian ministry? Well, before we do that, I want to call your attention to the context we've been seeing in these verses. 
Now, I will say at the outset that the bulk of these verses we're looking at today, we're actually told by John in verse 14 what's going on here. This is the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so these details that are given about his appearance, they're telling us, informing us that this is a historical fact. This actually happened, and yes, he rose from the dead. But I believe that these events are illustrating themselves for us some truths which would bring us great encouragement, great confidence in the Lord, understanding of how it is that the Lord works in us. There are many things illustrated in these verses today. And if you'll remember, we saw last week in this same section of Scripture that the emphasis here is on restoration to ministry, being restored to ministry for the Lord. And we're especially going to see that work in Peter in the next coming verses that we look at together. But you'll recall this whole scene having to do with being a fisher of men and then reverting back to trying to be fishers of fish and the relationship between these things and what's pictured in these things. That's going to be relevant to the idea of ministry. You'll recall a hard night's work the week before that we looked at, a hard night work not catching a single fish. And then at the word and command of Jesus, they have an overwhelming haul of fish, almost breaking the nets, as we're going to see not quite breaking the nets, but very full load of fish was illustrating to us that the worthiness and ability to catch fish or men ultimately did not depend upon the disciples, but upon Jesus. These who had failed miserably were not fit themselves in order to be fishers of men. Jesus is illustrating that it's not dependent on their fittedness. But I want to point something out early on. There may be some of you here today that are tempted to think, what does this have to do with me? I'm not a fisher of men. I haven't been called to be a preacher or an elder or an evangelist. So what does the fruit of Christian ministry have to do with me in my life? Well, I want to remind you of something and challenge you. That just because you're not set apart as a preacher or evangelist or a pastor in a church or any position of leadership does not mean that you're not called to ministry. If you're a Christian, you are called to ministry. Every one of us are called to ministry. As a matter of fact, those of us who are in positions of leadership are actually specifically charged to equip you for ministry. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. So I say again, every Christian is meant to be equipped for the work of ministry. That means that regardless of your station in the Christian life or in this church, you have a calling upon you to be involved at some level in catching people for Christ. You're to be involved at some level. I remember I heard it said this way. I believe it was Paul Washer at one time said, if you imagine that the work of ministry or of missions particularly is the idea of a well and you're trying to collect water from the well, he said that every Christian is to be involved in some level. Everyone should have their hands on the rope. Whether you're the one letting the rope down or you're the one down in the well collecting the water as the bucket, the idea was we're all to be involved. Every one of us. In addition to this, So not only is every Christian supposed to be in ministry and in relationship to collecting fish, to seeing people saved, that's the picture. Not only that, but we could see the same principles 
applied to every other fruit of the Christian life. Catching people, seeing people converted, that's one fruit, and we might say the primary fruit of Christian ministry. And yet, there are many other fruits which are demonstrated in the Christian life. Things for us to consider. That, that there are other aspects that we could call Christian fruit, such as building up of other believers, not just seeing people saved, but encouraging and building up other Christians, or even our own personal growth and individual sanctification. Christian fruit has many different forms. And so I want to ask at the beginning today, how interested are we, you and I, in seeing fruit in our labors for God? There are really two extremes when it comes to the idea of bearing fruit in the Christian life. There's the idea of being almost stoically unconcerned. You see your life, you see what does or doesn't happen, and it's like, oh, well, you know, case sera, sera, what will be will be. It's not really a big deal. It's not something to get concerned about. If I stay kind of moderately right here in my Christian life all the way through, well, I'm not overly concerned about it. Salvation doesn't depend upon me. It's all Christ. There's a temptation to just kind of coast in a very comfortable, mediocre level. That's one extreme error. And the other is to be so discouraged by a lack of fruit that you become tragically depressed. Drastically depressed. When you see failure or a lack of growth, that it almost cripples you and capsizes all your efforts. And so before we begin working through and analyzing what's given to us in this illustration today, I just want to read with you John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And be reminded, what is the proper relationship for the Christian in our understanding of fruit, our desire for fruit and our attitude towards it? John 15, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. We'll consider the full context of that section towards the end. But for now, here's the thoughts. Our interest, how interested should we be and the fruit that we bear. According to John 15, if you do not bear fruit, you will be thrown into the fire and burned. If there's no fruit, if you don't see fruit, growth, development in the Christian life, the testimony of the Scriptures is you are going to be cut off, thrown into the fire, and burned. And at one and the same time, we're told explicitly, you cannot bear fruit on your own. No fruit you're going to burn. But you can't bear fruit. So what do you do? Well, it's his, his word alone, which cleans you. You're already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. And it's abiding in him, which truly bears fruit. And I think we're going to see an illustration of how these things work practically in our verses today. So we begin looking together at verse eight. John chapter 21, verse eight. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, 
but about a hundred yards off. So the first thing we see today is an allusion back to the message last week. That remember, Peter, he had an interesting response. They were out there fishing. They'd gone back to their nets. They fish all night. They don't catch a thing. And then as they're going on this sea, all of a sudden, Jesus calls out to them from the shore to let down their nets for a catch. They listen to him. Their nets are filled with fish. And John says it's the Lord. And then Peter, when he hears that it's the Lord, dives into the sea to swim to Jesus. That's what we saw last week. That's essentially what we were looking at. And remember, we saw how Peter's response was gloriously illogical. The rest of the disciples, this is what we see in verse 8, the rest of the disciples, they're coming too. They're coming to the same shore. They're coming to the same Jesus. They're traveling by way of boat. They've got fish they've got to bring with them. Peter says, I'm leaving it all behind. I'm diving in and going to him myself. I say it's illogical. But we're also told in this verse 8 that the distance that Peter swam. A hundred yards. They were about a hundred yards away. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with a hundred yards, if it comes to your mind. What about a football field? That's what it is, a hundred yards. If you're standing in one end zone looking at the other end zone, imagine it's one thing to think about that, but you're swimming that distance. In a sea, not really knowing maybe necessarily what could be under the water. I'm just saying it's quite quite a thing that he would dive in and swim that distance. What's interesting to us here is that we see in Peter, we're told, we find out more about Peter actually, that though they would in the boat safely be arriving behind him soon, he dives in and swims towards the Lord. That's ridiculous. But it's gloriously ridiculous. It's a wonderful encouragement. And I can't consider this again without reminding us of something, charging us with something. That it is a good thing. There is a wonderful sense in which we ought to be illogical in our pursuit of Christ. Don't misunderstand me. We have a reasonable faith. We have a logical faith. We have truth that's given to us in the Scriptures that grows our understanding and helps us. As a matter of fact, you're not going to dive into the sea to go after Jesus unless you see some theological truths about Him. You're not diving in after somebody you don't know anything about. This is the same Peter who's already told us this Jesus is the Christ. He's the one come to save His people from their sins. Peter knew who his Lord was. That's who he's going after. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying run headlong towards somebody you don't know anything about. But if you get just a glimpse of who Jesus really is, then it's good whenever people are so consumed by a desire for him that they illogically, as the world sees it, forsake everything else. They say, I I don't care about anything else. That's what's demonstrated in Peter. And so my charge is for us that we in a like way Peter's a believer and he sees the Lord and he goes recklessly after him that you and I would do the same without being weighed down by the opinions and actions of others. You see, Peter, what's fascinating is Peter didn't wait to see if they would turn the boat toward the shore. Peter didn't say, "Okay, guys, let's take a vote on whether or not we're going or not. He didn't even say, turn the boat that way. He just dived straight in. He saw the Lord. It's all he needed. One glimpse. And he's going to Jesus, even if he's the only one. I was reminded again of uh, the quote from John Bunyan. You hopefully will recognize, but just soak this up in light of what we see Peter doing here. John Bunyan says, when a person becomes a Christian, it is no longer a priority to listen to the world. It's no longer a priority to care what the world may think. Everything changes. 
The world looks completely different. All of the temporal pleasures of this world become less enjoyable because a greater joy has been found. Thus, you place your fingers in your ears, for you no longer care about the world's opinion, and you run like a lunatic, crying, Life, life, eternal life. That's a pretty good illustration of what Peter's doing here. And now, granted, the opinions of his fellow brothers in Christ would be a wonderful thing to hear. But he's so consumed by the fact that the Lord is on the shore, that's where I'm going, that he blocks everything out. And so the charge is this. Maybe you hear that and you think, what an evangelistic appeal. What an exciting thing to hear for someone who's lost. And I say that some of us as Christians need to be reminded of the way in which we started this race. It's often the case that Christians, they take off running in the beginning with nothing but Christ in their eyes. When you realize your sins are really gone, he's all you want, he's all you pursue. But then we have a tendency down the road after facing trials, having been confronted with responsibilities before us, things that we must do. We slowly have our zeal robbed from us and we need to be reminded once again of the one whom we're chasing after. That we would apprehend you don't get any more advanced in the Christian life than the Apostle Paul. You don't. And Paul says that he might apprehend the Christ who had apprehended him. Chase him down. Go after him. And I wonder if we are marked by the same kind of zeal. Of course, there are others. Some of you perhaps here today who have never yet gone after Christ. Maybe you have just enough religion here today to send you to hell. This is a stark reality. There are a great number of people who even this time of year are singing songs about Jesus, perhaps, who have never yet come to go after him with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. It's interesting. I was developing this very thought this morning whenever I got a text message from Kelly Ginger. Psalm 73, 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So I'm thinking and working through Peter swimming a hundred yards to get to the Lord and get this text. It's good for me to be near God. It's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. He's the one I've gone after. And so the charge to us, all of us, whether as a believer or one for the very first time, that you would fly to him with this kind of zeal, with this kind of attention. Do not delay. Don't waste even one moment remaining as you are to have a singular vision of Christ. We get into verse nine, verse nine, John 21, verse nine. The next thing we see is this. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. The next thing we see is that Jesus was waiting for them. We already knew that he was. He's there right in the trajectory of where they're going to be traveling so that they can hear his voice from the shore. He's already called out to them. He knows it's them. He's summoning them to himself. But here we see with the meal that's prepared, he's expecting them. He knew well, perfectly, that they were going to be arriving at this shore. I want to remember, I want to remind you of something. What's pictured in this voyage These disciples had forsaken any hope of being fishers of men and they had returned to their nets. They're no longer seeking the fruit that he had called them to. So I just want to ask, as we consider this expression, when they got out on land, he's there waiting for them as a fire already made fish and bread prepared. What about us? 
What does this have to do with you? These disciples who had been in a failing position as it relates to being fishers of men. What about us? Have you given up hopes of being used by God? Of bearing fruit? And don't don't limit your thinking here to whether or not you might see someone converted. Surely all of us want to see our loved ones saved. We want to share truth about Jesus with our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our co-workers, everyone in our life. We want to see that. But remember, the idea of fruit in the Christian life is not limited to seeing people converted. There are many different expressions to the fruit that we offer up to God. But I wonder if you perhaps consider yourself to be too old. Some of you have been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive. And I've heard testimonies of saints. One of my favorite things I ever heard is Don Curran told me this. He said, brother, I don't want to die cold. I don't want to in my older years waste them as though Christ was not worthy of pursuing with all the zeal that he was at the beginning. That I would finish well. That I would be running the race at the very end. Or perhaps you think you're too weak. Too young, perhaps, to be used for Christ. Or maybe you look at your life and think I'm too sinful. And God forbid that many of us might say we're too busy to be useful in this work, this bearing of fruit. My question is, have we exchanged working for the Lord for some other focus or some other pursuit? And if so, And probably this is true of all of us at one time or another where we neglect the things that ought to be first in our focus for something trivial or something lesser. It's probably true of all of us. But my question again is, how is it that you expect the Lord to receive you if you were to return now? That's the context. These disciples out fishing for fish rather than men. Here they are being summoned back to the Lord. And how is it that he receives them? Notice this. He doesn't receive them with a harsh rebuke or with a scowl or a critical lecture. He's got a meal prepared for them. Here they are being summoned back, encouraged. And I think that's probably how we might often expect the Lord to receive us, not with a gentleness, not with a meal prepared, but with harshness and criticisms. He has for them a meal prepared. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now, there's a lot of glorious truth in this. Firstly, consider this. If we're right in understanding that this illustration is set before us to be, we're supposed to have in mind, I will make you fishers of men. We're supposed to have that in mind. That's what the whole miracle is reminding us back to that first event. I'll make you fishers of men. If we understand that these fish the disciples just caught are an illustration of fruit in Christian ministry, then we'll be fitted to understand the significance of the scene. First, notice this. Jesus already had fish before they came. Did you catch that? Jesus has a charcoal fire with fish and bread already laid out. He wasn't dependent upon them or what they had to give. He didn't need their fish in order to be completed. He didn't need their work. He didn't need the fruit that they bore. And here's the truth that the Lord... He who commands all things was he's the one who commanded the fish to jump in their nets. And here we see he didn't need what they had to bring. The only reason they had any fish was because of him. So the point is this. Apply this to yourself in your own life. The Lord is never in need of your feeble efforts to accomplish his purposes. 
There's nothing that you or I ever do that could take away from or add to him. And yet he's pleased to use us. He says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. The second thing we see in this verse is exactly what we're meant to do with any and all fruit that we receive from our labors. Here they've gotten these fish. Jesus says, bring the fish here to me. They're meant to be returned to him. The truth expressed in this is that you and I must not ultimately labor for ourselves, for our own glory or for our own carnal gain. And so how is it that we view the things that we've received from the Lord? How do we think about how do we measure what we give to the Lord? Is there anything in your mind that's tempted to think that what you have actually belongs to you and originates with you as though it were yours? Is that the way? Isn't that the way we measure measure things? How much do I have to give? How much time do I have to give? How much money do I have to give? How much emotional commitment do I have to give? We see ourselves and the things we give as originating with us. And so as I give, it's taking from what I have. If I give too much, then I'm not going to have enough. And not realizing that all and everything that we have is that which has been given to us already. And so the way that we give all, I mean, he says, bring some of the fish. But then we're told what the total number of the fish they caught was. So I don't think the idea is Jesus is saying, well, you keep some for yourself and bring me some, even though it does say the word some here. But we're going to see Jesus says, bring the fish that you've caught. And then he's going to turn around and give fish back to them. And so the point in the picture here is that whether it is the money we give or the time we spend, the prayers that we offer up, all those things that we might measure in the context of ministry, that when we feel like we've given everything we can spare to give, how important is it to realize that what we have to give is already His. We don't give what we give to the Lord because He needs it. And we don't give it to Him because it's not already His. It actually has much more to do with us than it does with anything else. It's doing something in us when we do that. But I think this finds a very strong application. How often are you tempted as a perhaps a mother at home? Goodness, you moms laboring with kids in the house and all the work that goes into taking care of them. And how tired you get and you're utterly spent and you've got nothing left to give, you think. How helpful is it to be reminded that is not raising children in the Lord a good fruit in Christian ministry? A wonderful fruit, something that you're hopefully offering back to the Lord. Do you think about the way that you host and prepare to have people into your home this way? We're going to have a meal. We're going to offer something to somebody. Is this not a fruit that ultimately you're offering back up to God? God has given me a home. He's given me means, food, something to offer. Yes, I'm blessing these people, but should that not first be seen as I'm going to honor the Lord through blessing and giving to these people. That all that we have and all that we give is first and foremost belongs to God. And this, I believe, ought to liberate us to a degree from two extremes. It ought to liberate us from giving resentfully or from being frustrated that we don't have more to give. You hear what I'm saying here? What they're bringing here is that which Jesus has provided. He's the one who's given them the fish. They're returning it to him. That's what all of us do in our labors in any, in any aspect of ministry that we engage in. We're giving back to the Lord what He's already given us. And so this is with two things it helps us with. One, if you give, 
you can freely give knowing everything I have is from the Lord. And so what I give, anything I give unto God, I'm returning to him. He's the one who provided what I gave. And so I can trust him to provide anything else that I might need. But secondly, if you get to the point where in your giving, and I mean every aspect of ministry, if you give anything, you can have confidence that how tempting is it at times to look and maybe measure what you give by what somebody else gives. I don't have as much to give as this other person does. I'm not as free. I wish I could do more to be content that what he has given you is enough. And there are times, frankly, where we do reach the end of ourselves or we literally don't have anything more to give. And we can be content. And what we have to give is having come from him. Verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. The first thing we're reminded of in this verse is that ministry and fruit bearing in the church is a shared endeavor. Now, perhaps last week you saw the disciples out fishing, working all night. And then all of a sudden they've got this large haul of fish in the nets and Peter dives into the water. You think, well, Peter, you left all the work to all these other guys. You're just going for a swim to see Jesus. How are we going to get these fish ashore? We still have boats to bring in. We still have work to do. Well, you hear, you see Peter going back and being the one to collect the fish and bring them in. And we might say, well, Peter only works when he's in the spotlight right there in front of the Lord. Well, that may sound silly, but that's not the focus here. You do see a picture of the different parties involved laboring together that we all do have a part to play and we should all be prepared to labor together. They work together in catching the fish and here just as an aside, Peter goes aboard and hauls the net to shore. Some have said that there's a, a historical idea that Peter was a very large and strong man. And part of the reason is that he's seen here to be carrying this net of 153 large fish by himself. It would seem um, that he must have been a very strong man in order to do so. But the point is plain that we all do have a part to play. The next thing about this verse, though, has to do with the specific nature of that fruit which is born. Think of it this way. We're told the exact number of fish. Was that odd to you? Why does it say exactly 153 of them? Why are we told? In the first account, we're not told the exact number in the first miracle. Why is it that we're told the exact number of fish here? And does it have anything to do with the overarching context of restoration to ministry and the Lord being able to take worthless disciples and make them fishers of men? Is there something unique about this number 153? Well... I believe there is. There's a reason why the scriptures, which are given and inspired by God, don't tell us 150 or 155. It's 153 because the every last detail in the scriptures has been ordered by the Lord. And in this particular illustration, these fish, remember, they represent the fruit of gospel ministry. They represent whether or not God's going to be able to with these fallible men to go and catch other men. That's the, that's the point. That's what's illustrated here. And so in light of that, God says there's 153 of them. Not only is He able to use these weak men, but the number of people who are going to be caught is specifically known by God. 
This number 153 says those who will be impacted through the ministry of these people and us is known by the Lord. And he will bring in, draw in every last one of those numbers. The number is specific. It's given. Remember from John 6, 37, Jesus said, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I made this point last week. Perhaps you remember it, that every one of the elect's names are individually written in the Lamb's book of life. And the exact number of the elect will be saved. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about conversions or any other aspect of Christian fruit bearing. We've got to find joy and contentment and excitement and knowing that the exact fruit which we see in our lives and ministry is the amount of fruit that the Lord's determined for us. Now, some of you, I know you're probably sitting there thinking, "Well, wait, does the fact that God knows exactly the number 153 people in this context The Lord knows the amount of fruit I'm going to bear. Does that mean that all of a sudden I'm not responsible? The fact that I can't catch any fish, I can't reach any person apart from God. Does that mean I'm not responsible to equip myself to labor, to work? Does it even matter whether I'm working? Well, consider this. Jesus said, and we saw this in the verse before, Jesus just said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Isn't this amazing? Who is the one ordering this entire unfolding of events? If not for the Lord, not a single of these 153 would be caught. And yet these were required to catch it. He didn't say zap and the fish jump up into the boat. He said, let down your nets, go to work, human responsibility, our responsibility in laboring with the gospel. Even this morning in a new members class, we were back discussing some of the the men throughout the history of the church, whether Spurgeon or Whitfield or Hudson Taylor, who believed that God was sovereign in salvation. And yet they were men who likewise believed that he sent us to the ends of the earth to proclaim Jesus, that he uses the means of the labors of us in order to bring about his purposes. He's not dependent upon us, but he does use our labors within his sovereign purposes. He's the one who ordered it, but he says, you bring some of the fish that you have just caught. 153 of them. And then finally, in verse 11, we see this. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Again, if we understand that this is a parallel, an illustration of gospel ministry and people being caught, being fishers of men, if we see that, and now we see there's a lot of fish determined the number, exact number determined by the Lord, and we're told the net was not torn. What an encouraging thing. Do you see what I'm going to apply this to? Not one of these fish, though there were so many, was lost. None of the fish are lost. The illustration, once again, all those who have been given to the Son by the Father are secure to the end. John 6, 39, Jesus said, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. None will be lost. The net, in our instance, the net which holds us can never be torn or broken. In the context of ministry. We find in verse 12 and 13, we'll take together. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, the final two very well, we'll look at verse 14 in a moment, but we'll take these verses together. And this depicts for us really a kind of communion and fellowship that we're supposed to enjoy with the Lord. And notice this, there is a fellowship, a communing that's taking place around the fruit of the ministry, the fruit of labor. It's involving the fish. It's involving a meal. See, as we labor for Christ, we rejoice around the fruit that he provides for us. So I ask, do you suppose that you and I here as a local church in this context, are we enjoying communion and relationship with the Lord? Do we have a a right understanding, an appropriate vision of our relationship to God and the fruit that we are bearing as his servants? Now, remember, there's a balance. The balance comes because we recognize that there ought to be a yearning, a desiring to bear fruit for him. But we also know that it's not ultimately my fruit bearing that's going to give me access to God or secure my soul. It's only what Jesus did. But are we not yearning to see fruit? Dependent upon Him as we do. Or are we content? There's a sense in which we ought to be content in the fruit that the Lord gives us. Whenever you grow, whether it's in your personal sanctification, or the fruit you see as a parent with your children, or your relationship to your spouse, and all these things, there's a sense in which we should be perfectly content with what God is doing in us, and then at the same time always desiring that He would work more fruit in us. Content in what He's doing, but perhaps it might be right to say discontent in what we're doing. Seeing the good fruit He's doing and loving and thanking Him for it, but then also recognizing our own failure to produce fruit. So I ask this, as a church, even as we're gathering together now, are we aware of the Lord's loving presence among us? Is it something that we desire? I want to read for you an example of some people, a church that's described as those whom the Lord loves. And yet there's a disconnect. They don't realize they look at their lives and they think there's an abundance of fruit when there's really not an abundance of fruit. They have a low expectation of Christ's power to produce fruit in them. And there's a summons that's given. Look with me at Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter three. Begin reading with me at verse 14. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him 
and eat with him, and he with me. You see any parallels in that message that was given to the church at Laodicea with our text and the context that's going on here? Here you have people who are really, as as a matter of fact, these disciples are perfectly aware of the fact that they don't have fruit. Their fruit did not measure up. They didn't even have any fish. They didn't have any temporal fruit until the Lord gets there. The Lord gives them this fish and it illustrates for us his ability and the necessity of Jesus to provide fruit in our labors. And then there's this rejoicing and fellowship together around a meal. And I want to suggest something in light of that text from Revelation. There is an inseparable relationship between our communing and abiding in the Lord and the fruit that we bear. Now, don't misunderstand me. Your relationship to Christ is not on the basis of the fruit that you bear. But if you're abiding with him and in relationship and communing with the Lord, it's going to produce fruit. You see, the the issue here, there's a fruit from his nearness that is born in us. And you see, the Laodicean church, they were guilty of a few things. They were guilty of believing that they were rich and they had plenty. They assumed essentially that they had reached the heights of growth, the heights of fruit and Christian experience. And it would be all too easy for us, especially those of us who might have been walking with the Lord for some time to look at our goals and our zeal and our activity in the world and say, we're doing right where we're supposed to be. We've got the right zeal. We've got the right commitments. And completely misunderstand that we're not blind, pitiable, poor. And naked. And Jesus says he rebukes the ones that he loves. So these are not people who are not Christian. These are ones whom he loves. And he's rebuking them saying, you think you've reached the heights of Christian experience and knowledge of me and fruit that's born in my name, but you haven't. And there's a call. Come in. How many times have I heard that scripture from Revelation taken out of its context to try to kind of manipulate people. And they say, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking. Won't you let him come in? That's not what he's saying. If you're lost and Jesus wants to come in, he will indeed kick the door down. He doesn't need you to let him in. He calls on you to repent and believe in him. He commands you to. But what's pictured in Revelation is people whom he loves. Christians here today. He says he desires fellowship to share a meal with you, to come in and dine with you. And sometimes I'm afraid that we don't even realize that we've been living, even as his people, without a sense of his presence with us. The truth expressed in our verses is that the grace of Christ, that he's prepared to come in and fellowship with the faithless, fruitless servants and to prune them that they would bear more fruit. That's what's seen in those two verses. Now consider for a moment verse 14 with me. John 21, 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. Now, I argue in light of John's testimony here that this is recorded. These things are recorded. They're not just an allegory of something that we don't know if it happened. These are real events, true events, And I suppose you might even say in light of what John says in verse 14, that the primary point of this testimony is a testimony of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And yet, I don't know how you wouldn't be encouraged, convicted and motivated 
from the evidence of the Lord's power to uphold His people, to produce fruit that lasts, to encourage, to meet with His people. The argument is that you and I are meant to enjoy and bear fruit for His glory. And we are dependent, completely dependent upon Him to do so. And it's a little bit different, perhaps, method. I'd like to move towards closing by just reading to you the full context of John 15. In light of what's depicted here, and I want you to be thinking about your own life, the fruit that you're bearing, and whatever realm of ministry you want to apply it, whether with children or a spouse or this church or this community or your job, in any way, those things which everything we do ought to be something we offer back up to God as an act of worship and praise. And I want to challenge us. Do we see how we cannot do this without him and yet we must be pursuing it in him? That's the whole picture that's given in John 15, not to be saved and accepted, but because we love him and we desire to be used by him. So measure these things in yourself as we work through this. Starting in verse one, yet again, down through verse 17, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me. So have I loved you abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. We see the emphasis all throughout that chapter. It's as if almost in my own heart and mind, considering the thoughts and what's depicted in John 21 today, there were things I began to pick up on and I preached John 15 some months ago. And yet there are some truths in those statements which are coming home even in a more fresh way than they did at the time that we worked through them. 
And I guess perhaps it has something to do with it's one thing when we read in John 15 about fruit bearing and abiding in Christ and the need for Christ. But then it's another thing when you see these men out laboring and their inability to produce any fruit until the Lord's there saying and commanding and dealing. And then there's this abiding relationship. And all of a sudden, this book takes on a whole new life. And you find out that these things actually apply to the way we live and the way we relate with one another. You go out there and try to love your spouse without Christ carrying you and you will fail every time. You try to be forgiving and gracious to those who fail you. You're going to fail yourself every time without the Lord. You can do nothing without him. And yet we're commanded and responsible and we ought to desire that fruit. But even more so as a church, we're desiring to see people saved. The lost confronted and challenged with their sin and separation from God. And they're going to remain on the outside and not a single person will ever be saved unless the Lord works and he grants the increase and gives fruit for the ministry. The burden and the charge is that we would be those who are aware that there are heights, there is growth, whether personal sanctification, whether as a church growing forward, whether as the number of the elect are gathered in by the Lord, by his spirit. These things, there's growth in every area. And that we would be content with what the Lord gives, but always, always desiring that he would do more for his glory and dependent on him while we wait. I pray these things will be an encouragement to you. And Lord willing, we'll go on next week to look at the specific restoration. So far, even in these illustrations of fish and the fruit that's born out of ministry, we're still somewhat looking at this in a collective way. But my prayer is that next week you would come and be prepared to be challenged directly as we see the Lord's gracious dealing with Peter. To be concerned about the way in which we understand the way the Lord restores and receives him. And so with that, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close this message in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that your word is true and good. Lord, the mere reading of your word is worth more than all the opinions of me or any other man put together. And I praise you that you, by your spirit, are able to connect with the souls of people, regardless of the weakness of the men proclaiming it. Father, I ask that you would bless us, that you would bring about fruit that endures. Lord, stir us up to pursue Christ and be found abiding in him, abiding in his love, knowing fullness of joy. Oh, God, that you would sustain us as only you can. Father, I pray that you would bless the time that remains for our fellowship, that we would enjoy this meal in your presence, that we would do business for your glory. And Lord, that in all these things, you would lead us by your spirit. I ask these things in Jesus name. Amen.